You are listening to the Progress Your Health Podcast, episode 44. Welcome to the Progress Your Health Podcast with your hosts, Dr. Robert Mackey and Dr. Valerie Davidson, a husband and wife team who specialize in bioidentical hormone replacement therapy and functional medicine. They're here to help you lose weight, balance hormones, and age gracefully. It's their mission to motivate, educate, and empower you to take your health to the next level. And now your hosts, hormone experts, Dr. Mackey and Dr. Davidson. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Progress Health Podcast. I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about uterine fibroids. The last two episodes, we talked about endometriosis. A few episodes before that, we talked about estrogen dominance. Uh, so this seems like a good time to squeeze in an episode and uh, you know, give up our take on uterine fibroids. So as we talked about endometriosis last time, the only way to diagnose, truly diagnose endometriosis is by signs and symptoms and by doing a laparoscopic surgery, which is pretty invasive. But one thing that sometimes people get confused with is the fibroids. So sometimes fibroids will actually mimic a lot of the symptoms of endometriosis. It's just the differentiation is usually with endometriosis, you'll catch that or you'll notice it or it'll become apparent in younger females where with fibroids, that's a little bit more common in about, you know, mid thirties to forties when you see the fibroids. So, and we were talking about this as we were prepping for the episode. And like I said, the endometriosis, you can't really diagnose it unless you do a surgical procedure, which, you know, has its uh, not necessarily limitations. I mean, I'm sure that's being done all the time, but with a, with fibroids, what's the common way to, uh, for a woman to uh, to get fibroids diagnosed? You can usually find a fibroid um, or fibroids, plural, by doing a transvaginal ultrasound. So doing an ultrasound of the uterus, because what is a fibroid? A fibroid is technically, if you want to get really schematic about it, it's technically a tumor, but it's a benign tumor and it it can, it'll usually most commonly manifest itself on the, you know, the inside of the uterus. There are fibroids too that can kind of put themselves in the wall or the muscle of the uterus because the uterus is technically a muscle. um, And those can be very painful. And like, like we had talked about before, or I had mentioned earlier is that some of the signs and symptoms of a fibroid mimic endometriosis, um, can just mimic typically heavy periods or something going on in the reproductive system. Fibroids can also mimic cysts or ovarian cysts can mimic fibroids. So it is good to, you know, in any case of some of the symptoms, which we'll go over a little bit of the symptoms of fibroids, is to do an ultrasound to differentiate, okay, what do we got going on in the in the uterus? Right. So, you know, I'm being, I'm kind of asking some rhetorical questions. I kind of know the answer to some of these, but uh, what is, again, age range wise, you might see endometriosis in a younger female, fibroids in, in a slightly older female, uh, what is the symptom picture that women usually experience that sends them into the gynecologist and they discover the fibroids? Usually with fibroids, it's heavy bleeding, you know, heavy bleeding to the point that sometimes with people with fibroids, they'll have anemia, they'll have low iron because they're bleeding so much and they're having a menstrual cycle every, you know, every 28, 30 days, 
but they lose so much blood in their period that they're not able to make up for it in that 28-30 day cycle, and then they lose some more. So there's, you know, there's some complications with fibroids, not just for the low iron, but also as women that have heavy periods or have fibroids know, having heavy periods is not very conducive to life, especially if you can't always get to the bathroom and take care of things, because people with fibroids could be Having some, I have women with fibroids that can't even use tampons because they bleed so much that the tampon would just fall out. Yeah, right. So certainly, if you're thinking of blood, how much blood or quantifying blood loss, you know, a low amount, a moderate amount, high amount, is there a way to quantify, you know, putting them in those different categories? Yeah, so just um, really with, I I guess I can kind of loosely term it as an active fibroid or active fibroids. It causes heavy periods. But I do have to say that there are lots of women out there that don't even know they have fibroids and they have them, but they don't necessarily have the symptoms of the heavy periods. It really depends on the individual. So, and when you think of heavy periods, you can usually pretty much correlate or put together is painful periods. So that's where the endometriosis kind of gets pushed in there. Like maybe I have endometriosis, maybe I have cysts. Maybe I have polyps, maybe I have fibroids. It's hard to differentiate because with fibroids, you can have very painful periods. Uh, So the painful periods, you know, we hear a lot of women describing that they, you know, that's part of their PMS history on what causes the, uh, the painful periods. It's, you know, like I had mentioned earlier, you know, the uterus is kind of like a muscle. So in a 28 day menstrual um, cycle of a female, the hormones are changing, uh, the inside of the uterus is getting a beautiful thick lining in hopes of implantation of a fertilized, you know, egg. So that beautiful thick lining is supposed to slough off when you get your period. So, you know, if you don't, if you're not pregnant. So what happens is the uterus wants to eliminate that complete lining if there's, you know, no fertilization. And then it begins its process again of thickening up that inside of that uterus. Now, if there's a fibroid in there, you know, the uterus or the body doesn't know that, you know, the difference between a thick lining or a fibroid in there, it'll just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze trying to take out what's in there. Now, a fibroid is not going to come out. A fibroid is either stuck inside the uterus or it possibly, in some cases, it's in the uterine wall. It's not coming out, but the uterus doesn't know that. So it cramps and cramps and squeezes and squeezes. And so people will complain about very heavy periods. Usually it's day one and two, sometimes a little longer and, and very painful. I mean, even I was talking to one gal yesterday and, you know, <laughs> pain meds don't sometimes don't even work. You know, they're bringing heating pads to work or they're just kind of out. Some people call in sick. Yeah. Right. Uh, And I've, you know, I've had some cases like that over the years too, where they literally, they're just out of commission for, you know, maybe a few days of the month. You know, they're, they're just really in a lot of distress. Uh, If you look at, you can look up the female cycle online. You can see pictures. If you graphed out the rise and fall of estrogen, usually around day 12 of the menstrual cycle, you get this surge of estrogen and that usually kind of coincides somewhere around there when all these things start to exist, maybe a little bit later than that, uh, you're going to, you know, you know, all these symptoms that seven to 10 days, or maybe even seven to 12 days before you're actually going to menstruate, you know, that's when all these symptoms really start to um, really kick in. And obviously I'm not a woman, so I can't necessarily relate, but I've talked to enough of them. And I know you certainly have as well, that certainly it, it, it really is a huge inconvenience, uh, not to mention the discomfort and the pain, you know, to just functioning normally, taking care of the kids, going to work, even, you know, going to school, whatever the case might be, they really have a problem just functioning on a normal basis when they have, you know, when it gets to this level. And usually it's the quality of life issues that are really, you know, people have to plan their vacations around their period because they don't want to be basically 
bleeding on a plane where they have no control, you know, or going to a nice tropical vacation in a bathing suit and worried about, you know, I have to go to the bathroom all the time because I'm bleeding or I have to wear a pad. And how do you wear a pad with a bathing suit? So anyway, I'm rambling. So there is that huge quality of life issue. But then on the side note is some other symptoms that can occur with a uterine fibroid or uterine fibroids is out of sync bleeding. So because that uterine fibroid, the uterus wasn't able to eliminate it during the menstrual cycle, sometimes some lining is there. Sometimes the fibroid causes extra lining to thicken up in that uterus. So some in the middle of the cycle, sometimes people can have some spotting or have like a mini period. Um, people also notice they get some spotting after intercourse. So after they have sex, they're like, oh my gosh, I'm bleeding. What's going on? So of course, what you want to do is you go to your gynecologist, you go to your doctor and you report that. And you know, your doctor is looking for disease. Anytime they hear of somebody bleeding out of cycle, you know, they get concerned, you know, they get concerned. So then they want to do the proper procedures to check for that. So that is usually it's a fibroid. So, you know, you can differentiate and be safe on that. But a lot of times they want to do biopsies and do some other procedures. But, you know, when someone's bleeding out of sync, you kind of have to do that just to make sure it isn't something serious. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, for a minst- for a reproductive age female, bleeding and that, it kind of is par for the course, right? It's almost somewhat normal to a certain extent. Um, but again, the the frequency and the amount, then that's when people, you know, get concerned. So from the gynecologist perspective, you know, granted you and I are not gynecologists, but when a woman comes in, like you said, they're having that that off pattern bleeding, what is their concern? What are they worried about? They're worried about cancer, you know, cancer of the so, uterine so, lining. Yeah. So uterine cancer. Okay, so fibroids are not uterine cancer. No, no, absolutely not. Fibroids are not cancer. Fibroids are not going to turn into cancer, but somebody bleeding out of sync could be a sign or a symptom of, you know, uterine cancer. So they want to make sure that they completely rule out that case. And honestly, if you go in for a pap smear, like, hey, I went in for my pap smear. I wasn't told I had fibroids. Nine times out of 10, you're not going to be able to feel a fibroid when you're doing a pelvic exam. I've done plenty of pelvic exams and with women that have fibroids, and I'll tell you, you can't really feel them unless they're very big. So you have to really to differentiate, to know if somebody has fibroids, you have to do some kind of pelvic ultrasound, a transvaginal ultrasound. There was one one case, a lovely young young lady actually, because sometimes fibroids are genetic. You know, they run in families. Is she had quite a few fibroids in her. And she's a petite little thing. And I remember laying her down and she still had her clothes on. I was just going to give her like an abdominal exam. And you could feel, you could even see the kind of lumpy bumpy of those fibroids. Now that's a very rare case. In most cases, like I said, you're not going to be able to feel the fibroid when you're doing a pelvic exam. You really have to do that ultrasound. Yeah, right. So just to make sure everyone's clear about that, fibroids don't mean cancer. Um, but yet the gynecologist is still concerned about, of course, uterine cancer. But in some ways, if they're having lots of bleeding, that uterine lining is sloughing off all the time. That uterine lining is probably not thickening that much just because they are bleeding a lot. Yeah, exactly. And and that's where we're going to go on and kind of talk about why that lining grows, why the fibroids actually grow. Because as I had mentioned, a lot of people have little tiny fibroids and they don't have any signs or symptoms. You know, they never even... Ha- walking around, you never even know you have them. It just depends on, like I said, how big, how kind of active, like you can kind of call that tissue sort of like active tissue creating these symptoms. And you got to love your gynecologist and your your primary care in terms of making sure that isn't cancer. I mean, you got they got to do what they got to do, but like nine times out of 10, it's a fibroid. In fact, probably 9.99 times out of 10, 
it's a fibroid. And then also, too, there's that, for especially for a menstruating female, um, fertile female that maybe wants to have children or have more children because they may already have some kids, is if you've got a fibroid, depending on how big it is, that does kind of increase the risk of miscarriage. So if somebody has a fibroid and they're pregnant, a lot of times their doctor will watch it. And we and I kind of tease them a little bit and say, oh, you know, you're, the baby's got a nice little pillow to put his head on, his or her head on with that fibroid, but you still have to be concerned because not only is there a baby in the uterus, there's another mass in the uterus. Yeah, right. So then it's a, then at that point, it's kind of a space issue, right? There's limited space already anyways. So this podcast is, this episode is talking about, you know, what causes them to grow. So kind of an obvious answer, you know, uh, what would you say, you know, the oh, obvious answer? Absolutely is estrogen because everybody knows. And, you know, if you, especially if you have fibroids or have had fibroids is once you hit menopause and you're not producing any more estrogen through your ovaries, those fibroids get very quiet and they shrink and they become small. So it really is kind of an estrogen issue in terms of growing them. But as a lot of females, you know, with fibroids, they want to shrink them. Of course, they want to minimize the symptoms. They don't want to be bleeding or having painful sex or bleeding after sex, or sometimes you can have painful bowels. Your bowel movements can be painful. Sometimes, you know, people have a lot of bloating. So they want to reduce that because oftentimes for a female that's usually, you know, they already have kids, they're not planning on having kids, is their doctor just says, you know what, let's just do a hysterectomy and take out the uterus. That's kind of their their go-to thing for somebody with fibroids. And the last thing, you know, we want to do is have surgery unless it's absolutely necessary. Yeah, right. And I think that's partially the reason why they they go that route. If birth control doesn't control anything, they go to the surgery because it's really difficult. There's no medication out there that is really going to lower estrogen. So if you're already kind of in that that feed forward process of, you know, estrogen feeding those uh, those fibroids month after month after month after month, that's a really hard cycle to break. Uh, how do you how do you do that? Uh, how do you effectively, you know, make that estrogen level go down? on its own. Uh, and I think that's why uh, it's very difficult to kind of intervene there, either uh, supplementation-wise or pharmaceutical-wise, you know, it's very difficult to stop that cycle. Yeah. So the, you're, you know, your gynecologist, you're, maybe you're anemic, maybe you, you know, you have that low iron, uh, maybe it's really affecting your quality of life. That That's the easiest thing they can do. Take out the uterus, the fibroids are gone, then you never have to deal with it. But in the case of a menstruating female that may be, you know, fertile female that maybe wants to have another child or wants to have a child, they a hysterectomy may not be the option. So the other option is a myomectomy, which is removing the fibroid. But in the case of somebody that has a lot of fibroids, that's a lot of surgery. I have and and granted, I have one young female, granted this does run in her family, you know, fibroids, and she's in her 20s and she's got lots of fibroids, is, you know, having a surgery, a lot of times they don't get the fibroids, all of them, and then they grow back. So there is that case there, but she does want to have a baby at some point, you know, sooner rather than later. So the, taking out the uterus isn't an option. So we're working on trying to reduce down that estrogen, reduce down, you know, what's going to cause her uterine fibroids to grow. But as I'd mentioned earlier, Somebody that maybe doesn't want to have any more kids and or they're in their 40s and definitely, you know, you don't want to be on birth control, you know, at 45 or, or older is, you know, they want to do a hysterectomy to remove that uterus because honestly, a myomectomy, removing the fibroids is a messy surgery. It's There's a blood supply there trying to remove that, the you know, it's bleeding where you just pull out the uterus. It's a lot of, it's a lot easier surgery. Right, right. So that might make, and, and you know, you and I see lots of women that are in their mid to late 40s and they're all having hysterectomies. Uh, which in some ways seems like it seems unnecessary, right? Because 
they're so close to quote unquote menopause anyways, they just were able to calm down the bleeding uh, or the cramping or whatever symptoms they're having and just waited a little while and they would just kind of go away on their own. So the fibroids themselves, they really don't hurt anything. Like I said, active versus non-active. If they're active and they're having cramping and bleeding, that's really all the consequence of having a fibroid. Is that correct? Absolutely. And that low iron. And and I think, like I said, surgeons, we had always talked about surgeons are great. You know, they do their craft beautifully, but that's what they want to do. I had a, another patient the other day and she was, you know, very upset. In fact, she's going to go see a psychi- psychologist and a therapist for this is she feels so bad that she had her hysterectomy for the fibroids. And I told her, you know, you did everything that you could. You were anemic. I mean, what are you going to do? You know, if you're having that low iron, you can't leave the house certain days of the month. It was something that you had to do. And she said, well, I talked to my hairdresser and she said I could have just had an ablation, which be careful about the information that you get. If you're think an ablation is removing the lining of the uterus, so to the basement membrane, so they typically will have very not so heavy periods. But that's removing the lining. That's not removing the fibroid or the fibroids, plural. You can't do an ablation on a fibroid. So, and, and, and that made her feel better, of course, but you want to get all your information because some things out there, the internet, whatnot, people you know, they all have their own stories, but they not might, may not, you know, might not fit for you. Right. And, you know, when it comes to the, you know, the last episode or the last two episodes, we talked to endometriosis and fibroids. Those two, you know, even from our kind of non-invasive approach, um, those are two very stubborn problems, you know, where sometimes, no matter what, a hysterectomy might be the best option. Uh, Now, we wouldn't necessarily start there, right, where a gynecologist might just, you know, try to, you know, do birth control for a while that doesn't solve anything and they go right to the hysterectomy, where we would actually have some other interventions along the way. Um, But still, if they're not getting the relief, if they're anemic, if they can't leave the house, if they can't, you know, their quality of life is diminished, then that might be their best option. So she feels really bad about having a hysterectomy because in some ways, maybe she's listening to the wrong people. Like you said, it is these kind of situations. It's very individualized. And if you have, you know, a group of women that have fibroids, you have 10 women that have fibroids or 100 women that have fibroids, what works for one or two of them may not work for the other, you know, eight or the other 80 or 90 because it is a very... A very specific thing to that woman and her, you know, her situation and her genetics as well too. Exactly, and and as we had mentioned, you know, don't necessarily want to jump into surgery if that's the last kind of resort. Absolutely, you know, you got to live, you got to be healthy, you got to have a quality of life. You know, you don't want to have you know negative side effects to having these fibroids. But at the same time, like we had mentioned, you know, what is really kind of causing the fibroids to progress, causing them to grow, causing them to be active and creating these symptoms is it really has to do with that estrogen and progesterone balance. And we've always gone back to what does estrogen like to do? She's amazing. She's the best hormone in the entire universe, but she can be a runaway train because estrogen likes to grow things. So you got a fibroid, estrogen being unopposed by other hormones, um, other lifestyle factors, is she's going to grow that fibroid or maybe probably grow a family of fibroids. Now, something that we've talked about on other episodes, you know, we have in our content library on our website, we have 
a dietary approach that we wrote called the KCCP uh, Keto Carb Cycling Program, uh, which is just really kind of a culmination of years of experience and what we feel is kind of the best approach to you know losing uh, belly fat specifically, but just you know getting your body to burn fat more efficiently. Because as we're talking to women, especially and certainly in this fibroid age range, uh, mid thirties and beyond, losing weight becomes a very challenging thing. Uh, now, one thing that, and honestly, I did not know when I was first starting out, you and I were in Las Vegas in practice, I was running a weight loss program, doing a ketogenic diet. Uh, one thing that I, and I didn't know the connection for, honestly, for years, but every woman that I would put through the ketogenic diet, they'd all come back and say, you know what? My period got better. Okay. My period, the bleeding got better. My cramping went away almost invariably. And every woman that, you know, of course, most of the women, people that I saw for the weight loss program were women, almost every single one of them that were in menstruating age would all say their periods improved in some capacity, whether it was cramping, whether it was bleeding, whether it was length. And it took me a long time to figure out why that was. And at least at the time I had no idea and I don't even know where, I think you and I were at a medical conference or something, and or just some of the research that we've done over the years, and the connection that insulin drives that increase of estrogen. And now granted, this goes back to you know, reproduction and survival and what food means and access to food and how our bodies are wired when we have lots of food available that makes our insulin go up, which then makes our sex hormones go up. So now reproduction is possible. If we're starving, right? We're out there in the wilderness somewhere. and We don't have any food. Insulin goes down. Reproductive hormones go down. Um, that's why we always talk about in the KCCP not to lower your calories too much because it and kind of throws everything else off. So another way, I know I'm rambling on here a little bit, but another way to have an impact on the fibroids is to lower your insulin burden, uh, which of course is something we talk about a lot, but a, a part or a piece to this puzzle that your gynecologist is never going to tell you. Yeah. And, and basically you're reducing inflammation. So by re doing an anti-inflammatory diet, which is the KCCP, it does reduce that inflammation and reduce down that insulin. Because just on another side note is um, adipose tissue, fat, fat cells. Fat cells or fat itself is almost like its own endocrine gland. I think it might even be categorized now as an endocrine gland because it's fat tissue secretes its own hormones. So now I'm not talking about somebody, you know, like us, all us girls, myself included, we always want to lose 10 pounds, right? That's like, <laughs> we always do. Not vanity pounds. I'm not talking that. But somebody that maybe has quite a bit of weight to lose, that can actually kind of come back around and bite them in the bum because their fat tissue is secreting estrone. It'll actually, you know, it makes, a, you know, fat tissue secretes a bunch of other hormones too with all the other metabolic hormones as well that we've gone into before on other podcasts. But in particular for this one is fat cells, adipose tissue creates estrone. Estrone is one of those estrogens because we make three, estrone, estradiol, and estriol. But estrone is one of those negative ones that actually creates inflammation. It creates um, more of an appetite, a munchie. It can actually create that lining of the uterus to get thick and promote Fibroids. Yeah, right. And again, that that is the backdoor sort of way at lowering that insulin burden, which you cannot, or excuse me, the estrogen burden, which you cannot do really through prescriptions, except, you know, like we talked about birth control. And, you know, of course, we are kind of somewhat opposed to that approach in general. So, and I think that's why it's just kind of looked over or looked past and you've got really two options. 
But part of our uh, us doing this podcast is to make women aware. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So it took me a long time to figure out the connection between insulin and estrogen and why does that happen? Uh, but now, as you said, there's this age range that happens, right? So 35 plus, let's say. What starts happening at that point is their progesterone levels start declining. Uh, so now you have way too much estrogen, not enough progesterone. You throw some stress into the mix because you're taking care of the family or you're exercising a lot or you're working full time or maybe all three of those. Um, so now the whole situation gets exacerbated because you have proportionally those hormones are all out of whack. Yeah. Like like I said before, you know, estrogen is a great hormone. It's an awesome hormone, but we want to balance it. So when you hit it, you know, 35 or really truly in the 40s, I'm in my 40s, is that progesterone drops down a little bit. So the estrogen might not necessarily be sky high. Your estrogen level might actually be normal, but because that progesterone has dropped down a little bit, then it makes it seem like that estrogen is dominant. So a lot of times we'll do bioidentical progesterone or ways to try to increase up that progesterone, and then that that helps kind of balance out that estrogen. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that and that's something again that is a, a very very safe option. Should be kind of more of the standard of care, but it's it's really not. I'm not really sure why that it isn't. You know, do you have any ideas on why that is not? Oh, I really think a lot of people have become their own health advocate, and we realize that we need to have more of a healthcare team, not just a one one to go to. You know, I go to my one my one and done. You know, like I'd mentioned about the surgeon or your gynecologist, they know what they're doing, but they're doing their specific trade. You ask your surgeon, how do I keep the fibroids from growing back, or how do I? prevent them from getting bigger. They're going to just look at you cross-eyed because they're not going to know that, but that's because their craft is surgery. So it's just like what I always tell my patients, do not just come to me because they'll be like, oh, you're my only doctor. I don't want to be your only doctor because I only, you know, one, one head is not as good as many. Granted, we all need to work together is you've got to have your team. Yeah. Right. And unfortunately, you know, people have this I would like to say fantasy. They want their doctors to like hang out and have coffee and talk and do all this stuff. And unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Even doctors like in the same practice don't even talk to each other, let alone different practices, you know, different parts of the country, uh, whatever. But you have to, you know, kind of be in charge of all that. And they all, whether it's a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, a gynecologist, an atropath, every one of them has a particular role in your wellness. So we talked about this on the last one. You go to specialists sometimes expecting to get all of the information that you want to be able to make informed health decisions. And that's honestly, that's one of the main reasons why we do this podcast is because that doesn't always happen. You know, so we're giving our, our two cents worth. Um, so that way people can you know really make those. And we're not saying, like you said, we're not saying that surgery is bad. Sometimes that might be your only option, you know, to go the gynecologist route to have the surgical procedure to take care of your fibroid because, you know, you can't control the bleeding with a little bit of, you know, bioidentical progesterone. That might be what you have to do because now you have exhausted all your other options and you've had the, you know, with your, you know, talking with your family, your spouse, your significant other, whoever, you have had a chance to, you know, really have a full amount of information to be able to make those really sometimes very tough decisions. Oh yeah, no, it is a tough decision. Anybody knows to have, you know, to have surgery or even for a female that's still technically fertile to have your uterus removed there, you know, there is a little bit of you know, a little grief period with that, um, let alone they're super happy that they're not having a period anymore and they, and they certainly deserve that. But there is, you know, a lot of personal thought and input going into making such a big decision. So that's why we do this is so that we can kind of impart some information that might help you either now or in the future or with a loved one. 
hopefully this has been informative. Hopefully this is kind of give uh, the women that are out there suffering or like you said, if you know a family member or a friend, a coworker maybe that is kind of dealing with some issues, um, there are, you know, there are some other ways to deal with these kinds of female related problems that, that are, you know, even though they are challenging, they're very difficult. You know, there are lots of, lots of things that can be done besides birth control and surgery. So Dr. Davidson, anything else to add or can we bring this one to a close? Oh yeah, no, this was great. I do, I do think you know we had mentioned about our um, keto carb cycling program that we had talked about. That we you know we we use it as a way for, of course, to lose the belly fat and to lose weight, but it does reduce down that you know that sort of estrogen dominance per se. So if you're interested in that, absolutely go visit our website. We have it in our content library. It's free. It's kind of long because. I like to write and kind of be wordy, but towards the end, there's, you know, the, the nitty gritty there on exactly the steps that you can do to try to um, reduce down inflammation, balance those hormones, and then also, you know, fit into your genes a little bit better. Right. Until next time, I'm Dr. Mackey. And I'm Dr. Davidson. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Progress Your Health podcast. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, please give us a positive review on iTunes. This allows us to spread our message, grow our audience, and help more people around the world. For more information, visit our website at progressyourhealth.com.